Uh, it's good to be here. As uh, Father Ann said, I am from Church of the Resurrection, the sending church that sent out Emmanuel that uh, last October. So it's really exciting for me to be here. Uh, back at Resurrection, I'm known as like the tall, skinny guy who plays the trumpet sometimes, or, or the guy that looks too young to have three children. Those are the comments I get, like, oh, aren't you the guy, the tall, skinny guy who plays trumpet? Yeah. You really have three children? Yes, I do. Uh, but as Aaron mentioned, uh, in the last six to seven months, my wife and I began discerning a call to church plant in Elgin, Illinois. So it's great to come here, get a chance to practice preaching um, on you guys. Thanks for being my guinea pigs, because up to this point, uh, most of my practicing has been on the three-year-old population in my home at bedtime. Uh, don't let this alarm you, but we've just found that's the most effective way to put them to sleep. <laughs> I'm actually really encouraged uh, to bring a word to you this morning because on coming in here and listening to the songs as a team was practicing, hearing the prayers, and even just reading Psalm 51 there, I have a sense and a feeling that the Lord wants to speak a very specific word, a word of encouragement and hope. Uh, the word that he gave to me as I was preparing just seems to be syncing up and lining up with other things that I'm observing. So I, I have that confidence, and it's, it's in the Lord, and it's... It's not in me, of course, uh, but it's in what he wants to say to us. We begin by, um, I want to ask a question. When I say the word test, what comes to mind? What emotions do you feel? Does your heart rate increase? Uh, blood pressure starts to go up? Maybe your mind races back to that day in eighth grade when your 4.0 was blown because you showed up to geography and found out there was a pop quiz and you forgot that the capital of Azerbaijan was Baku. How could you? We don't like tests by nature. We, we dislike tests. They're uncomfortable. They stretch us. They reveal our weaknesses. When we look at Psalm 63, it's very important for us to understand that the context of this psalm, it is in the wilderness. It takes place in the wilderness. David is writing this song while he's on the run. Verse 9 tells us that he's on the run from people trying to destroy his life. There are people they want to kill him. So he's in the Judean wilderness. If you've ever seen pictures or if you've ever happened to, to go to the Holy Lands, you know that the Judean wilderness is a barren place. There's no life there, not much animal life, hardly any vegetation. It is dry. It is truly a weary and thirsty land. In the scriptures, wilderness is a symbol. It's an icon for testing. When the people of Israel were rescued out of Egypt, God destroyed Pharaoh and his armies, brought them through the Red Sea. It was this miraculous salvation moment for the people of God. And yet what that ushered them into was 40 years of testing in the wilderness. And it was seared in the memory of God's people that the wilderness equals the place of testing. And again, David's in that place of testing. And he was there often on the run from either Saul or at points later in his life from his own son who was trying to usurp the kingdom out of his control. And of course, we can't forget that Jesus himself, at the onset of his ministry, after, after being baptized in the Jordan, the scriptures tell us he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days and for 40 nights. And then at the end of this time, the devil himself came to our Lord and tested him and tempted him. So the Bible teaches us that wilderness equals testing. 
And all of us are familiar with the place of wilderness. We understand what it feels like to be in a wilderness place. Psalm 63 is a psalm about the soul. And we'll talk a little bit more what that means later. But we know what the wilderness of the soul is like. Some of you are in a wilderness place right now. And if you're not, just wait a little while. You will be soon, right? Because the wilderness, it's when we're experiencing pressure of any kind, maybe financial pressures, maybe deadlines at work or in school, pressures at work, this need to accomplish or achieve, this fear that I'm going to flop, fall on my face, that I'm not going to be able to keep up, this fear and anxiety about relationships in my life that may be deteriorating, Maybe similar to David, maybe you don't have somebody that's actually trying to kill you, but there are people in your lives who seem to be trying to ruin your life, ruin your relationships, ruin your chances at success. It might be a loss or a sorrow or a grief. It might be a health problem, an issue of just a physical, medical illness that will put you in the wilderness place. It might be sin that you've committed to put you far from God and you haven't quite figured that out. You, you feel far from God. You don't know why. But whatever, whatever brings us there, the wilderness of the soul is a place where we lack the joy and the life that we are meant to have. Uh, I remember the first really serious job that I took, one with actual responsibility, was a ministry position. I was a youth pastor at Church of the Resurrection. And for the first year or two, there would be periods where I would have this intense wilderness of the soul, where I was so thankful that my office had no windows and I could lock the door because sometimes, I kid you not, I'd be talking with my coworkers with a smile on my face and then dive into the office in my little uh, office so I could curl up on the ground in the fetal position and say, I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like I'm going to fail. I'm freaked out. This is too much responsibility for me. Other times I've been in the wilderness. Uh, when I was a young man, there was a period where I went away from the Lord and I disobeyed, and I, it took me a while to figure that out. When it came clear to me that my sin had put me in the wilderness and I sort of woke up from the delusion, I felt the distance. I felt that lack of life and joy. I said, I'm in a wilderness place. And in some ways, the wilderness place seems like it's the human condition. That's life. That is this life. And in Psalm 63, we, we hear almost echoes this dry and weary land where, where we're fainting, where there is no life. We almost hear echoes of that expulsion from Eden. When we were kicked out from the presence of the Lord. When we were made to walk away from the garden and the riches and the water. And now we're in this wilderness place. And we're saying, where is this God that I used to have fellowship with? So life, it feels oftentimes like a wilderness, test after test. And we ask the question, why? What's it, what's it for? Why am I in this wilderness place? And the scriptures tell us. The Lord says to his people, Israel, I brought you through the wilderness, those 40 years of testing, to humble you and to see what was in your heart. In First Peter, Peter tells us, God is guarding you for a salvation that will be revealed at the last time, but we're not there yet. And he said, in the meantime, we experience various trials, all kinds of trials. Any type of trial, he says, is a way to prove the genuineness of your faith. And we go through these trials so that we are tested and refined like gold that's refined in the fire. 
But gold perishes, he says. Your faith will never perish. And these tests refine you. And they prove the genuineness of your faith. Or Hebrews likewise tells us, when you're being disciplined by the Lord, when you're in a testing place, don't be discouraged. Remember, he's treating you as his children. Because what child is not disciplined by their father or their mother? So if you are being disciplined, take heart. You're actually growing in maturity. So what the scriptures tell us, in the wilderness, our souls are tested to see if we will make God alone our true feast. And that's the thrust of the sermon today. In the wilderness, our souls are tested to see, will we make God our true feast? So let's take a look at the psalm a little more closely, this idea of feasting on the Lord. Well, first of all, the soul. The soul, today, there's a bit of an argument, a debate, like, is there such a thing? Some people would like to say there's no such thing as a soul. What you call emotions or spiritual experience is nothing more than synapses in your brain and chemical reactions that can be explained through biology. And as Christians, we fundamentally reject that. We say, no, we believe that we are bodies infused with a spirit, that there is an unseen reality to who we are, and that in some ways, in many ways, that unseen reality, the soul, is the seat of our being. It is the core and essence of who we are. In fact, in, in Greek, the word for soul is synonymous with life, soul and life. Our life, our soul, who we are, the core of our being, that's the idea. But it is an invisible reality, so the psalm gives us language of visible things. In verse 1 and in verse 5, it talks about thirst and water. In verse 5, it talks about being satisfied with fat and rich food. Because we understand, because we are embodied, we have physical bodies, we understand what it means to thirst. We understand what it means to hunger. So David is saying, in the same way that my body thirsts for water, and my body hungers for food, my soul hungers and thirsts for God. And this is the first lesson we learn from Psalm 63. That God alone satisfies God the soul, and that God alone is our soul's true feast. And God puts us in that wilderness place, and he allows the testing to come so that it might be seen to us, in this time, in this day, am I feasting on the Lord? Am I making him alone my true feast? Because our soul's deepest need is to be connected with the Lord. So let's talk about that. Why is it that God alone is our true feast? Well, in verse 1 he says, Oh God, you are my God. What does it mean that he says you're my God? What is God to us? Well, first and foremost, you must remember God is our creator. He's our maker. He's the one that called all things into being, no less each of us individually. Individually he has created you. Individually he has wanted you to exist. And as humans, we have a capacity far, far beyond the animals. We have capacity to wonder and to ask questions, why am I here? Who or what brought me to this place? For what reason? And the answer of scriptures is so overwhelmingly encouraging. The answer is, the Lord says, I brought you here. Why? Because I love you and I want you to be with me. So in our soul, we're searching out our purpose 
the meaning, our source. If God is our source, there's a way in which we long to get back to that. We long to get back to our source because that creates meaning for us. We want there to be someone greater than us so that our little lives have meaning. We plug into something that's greater than, than ourselves because if we're honest with ourselves, if, if we're honest and we know deep down, if I'm all there is, that's not that great because I, I know who I am. I'm not that great. I don't have the capacity to provide meaning for all of life. But when we say, actually, I believe in God and that my soul's purpose is to be connected back into God, that kind of fills out meaning for who I am. And I find my place in Him. And because He's so big, there's a comfort in that. Um, I tell my girls, as I mentioned earlier, I, I tell them stories before we go to bed. They always want two stories. One story is that they always ask for a story about Jesus and his disciples and the angry people. I don't, I don't know why. They always want to hear about the angry people. And if I don't tell a story that includes the angry people, they say, tell us about the angry people. I'm not sure what that says. But, but along with the story about Jesus and his disciples and the angry people, they always ask for a story about Caroline and Teresa. That's them. They are Caroline and Teresa. They want a story about themselves. And they're three. So it's, it's a healthy kind of narcissism. I, I, I'm not too worried about feeding their vanity because in an innocent way, they, they want to know their story. They want to know where do they come from and why do they belong. And now that we've just recently added a third child, we, uh, Simon was born uh, not this last Friday but the Friday before. And so now we've found ourselves telling a lot more stories about Caroline and Teresa when they were itty-bitty. And we're remembering things that we forgot, and they, they want to hear more. Tell us about when we were little. What did we do? What were we like? They want to know. And the more we press into God, the more we make him our search, we find out those answers. And, and in that kind of innocently narcissistic way, we, we find out our own meaning and purpose. Tell me the story about myself. And you know God loves to do that. Jesus said to his disciples on the last night before he was crucified, he said, I'm going away to heaven, but I will come back because what I want is to bring you with me so that you will be with me. That's the heart of our creator. That's the heart of our maker. He wants us to be with him. Fundamentally, there's nothing more important than that. And Psalm 63 brings us right there. You are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. Remember also when Jesus was feeding the 5,000. He took a few loaves, multiplied them, miraculously fed a whole multitude with just a few loaves and a few fish. The next day, the crowds come running towards him. They want to find him, and they're, they're looking for the bread. And Jesus says, okay, you're, you're looking for me because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. But he said, it would be better for you if you sought after the food that does not spoil. The bread I fed you with yesterday, if you left that out, it eventually would crumble and rot. Search for, seek after the bread that does not rot. That's what he tells them. The bread that I fed you with yesterday, yeah, that's good. It's, it was real. But it was actually a sign to point you to something deeper. And then he goes on to teach and say, me, I am the bread of life. Not bread, Jesus. I'm quoting Jesus here. I am the bread of life, he says. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger anymore. 
Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And this is the hungering and the thirsting that David is experiencing in Psalm 63. In fact, he goes so far as to say in verse 3, Your steadfast love is better than life. As good as this life is and as wonderful as this world is that God has created and the blessings of this life and the blessings that we experience, what David is saying and what Jesus is calling us to is to say, yet my love surpasses even that. All of those blessings and gifts are are merely signs to point you to something greater beyond. So search for this food that does not spoil. What he's saying is God alone is the true feast of our soul. And the place of wilderness and testing exists to show ourselves, to reveal to us, is that true for us? To what degree are we making God alone the satisfaction and the feast of our soul? So we turn from, okay, we understand that God alone is our soul's true feast. How then do we feast on the Lord? How does our soul feast? Let's take a look at verse 2 here in Psalm 63. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. So when you are in the wilderness of the soul, when you're in a testing place, this tells us what to do. Come to the sanctuary. Behold the power and the glory of God and lift up your hands and call on his name. Now as Christians, all of that has a really, really profound meaning. The interpretation of these verses that we see on this side of the cross is this. Verse 2, when it says, I've come into your sanctuary and I've beheld your power and your glory. That's what we're doing right now. We come into the sanctuary and we behold the power and the glory of the cross. And what does it mean to behold? How does the soul feast? The soul feasts by beholding, by fixing in our minds, by fixing our thoughts, by fixing, uh, there's that saying, the mind's eye what we see in our mind, what we're fixing our attention on, that's beholding. And when there's an object that we fix our minds upon, that's beholding. And how does our soul drink and how does our soul eat? By beholding. So we come into the place of sanctuary, we put ourselves at the cross, and we fix our minds on Jesus, crucified for us. And we're told that this is the power and the glory of God. It is the power because Paul tells us the cross disarmed the authorities, the demons, and in fact the devil himself, who had us enslaved and in chains. I mean, talk about a wilderness place. When we gather on Sunday mornings, what is the purpose of our gathering? It's centered around reminding one another, reminding each other of the story that, yes, we were once in a wilderness place, the wilderness of wildernesses, capital W, when our sins had put us far out of the reach of God and there was no way for us back. Remember, we could not get back on our own. And it was in that place, precisely in that place, that Jesus comes and he finds us and he brings us 
out of the wilderness. He forgives us our sins. And this is by the power of the cross and by the power of his resurrection, by which he overthrows our captors, the devil and his minions, and brings us new life and freedom. So we fix our minds on Jesus. We fix our minds on the cross. And we do that not only when we gather on Sunday mornings, but then throughout the week. When you are in the wilderness place, if it's a wilderness moment, or if you recognize, no, this is actually a sustained wilderness season for me, the test is, will you again and again every day, even within a day, several times throughout the day, inwardly turn? And it can be something as simple as just quietly making the sign of the cross over your heart or over your mind and reminding yourself, Jesus, I look to you. You are my glory. You are my power. I'm in a wilderness, and I believe that you alone will get me out. And that's why verse 4 says, it's in your name that I will lift up my hands. Because there are other options, aren't there? Father Aaron mentioned at the beginning, sex, money, power. We look to ourselves. We might look to others in an unhealthy way to validate ourselves, to say, yes, you, you belong, you're doing a good job. But what this is saying is, in that wilderness place, will you look to God alone? Will you turn? And will you lift up your hands in the name of Jesus and call on Him? And what happens is when we begin doing this, when we continually week after week and then throughout the week, together corporately but also individually, when we, when we come to the cross, when we behold the power of the cross and the resurrection and we put our faith again and again in Jesus, we see this transformation that happens. And the paralysis is transformed into praise. Our grumbling turns into gratitude. The woe is me becomes worship, and our fear is replaced by faith and confidence. As we look at the rest of this psalm, notice that David is still in the wilderness. For the whole rest of the psalm, he he doesn't say, and God delivered me from this. He's in the wilderness for the rest of the psalm, but from verse 2 onward, his tone is confidence and faith. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied, and I will remember you, and I will meditate upon you in the watches of the night, and I will cling to you, and I will sing for joy, and with joy my lips will praise your name. And verse 9, because you will deliver me. Those who seek my life will go down you will lift me up, you will bring me out of this wilderness place. But he's not there yet. He's writing these words while he's still in the wilderness. Because when we behold the glory of the Lord and his power, and we remember like, oh yes, if Jesus has already delivered us from so great an enemy as the devil, there is no greater enemy, there's no greater deliverance that we could have needed, and he's already done it. How much more will he deliver me from this present crisis and this present wilderness? He will. And so instead of anxiety and calling on the name of the Lord out of anxiety, we're calling in full faith. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I know the joy will return. I know your life will come back to me because that is the promise. And I know it's going to happen because right now, God, I'm declaring to you that you alone are my soul's peace. You alone feed me. You alone quench my thirst. Forgive me if I've looked to other things. I look to you now and you alone. And that's when we enjoy what David has here, that that full faith, that confidence, that assurance 
that the wilderness will come to an end. This trial will disappear. It's true, though, isn't it, that as soon as the trial is done, a new trial comes, and we're like, well, yes, Lord, I know you delivered me from that, and you were faithful there, but this is different. I know that finals week was rough, but, but this one, there's more tests. There's, or I, I know that situation with that pregnancy was, was rough, and you did deliver us, but, but this is different. This, this pregnancy has a whole new complication of its own, or whatever it might be. And, and how quickly we are to forget, which is why David says, I will remember you. Which is why when we come and we gather and we focus on the cross again and again and again, we cannot do it too often because we forget so quickly. So we must remember, no, he has delivered us and he will deliver us again. So as we come to a close, if you're being tested and if now you're in that place where you're experiencing the fear or anxiety or there's pressures that are on you or for whatever reason you're feeling... Yeah, this is a season of a lack of joy. Then my call to you is to make God alone the feast of your soul. And it might be worth asking yourself and asking the Lord this morning, in this time, today, as you continue to reflect um, on this morning, to ask yourself and to let the Holy Spirit ask you, okay, when I'm put to the test, where do I turn? Where do I usually turn first? Is it to you, Lord? Let him reveal. Or do we turn to other places? Sometimes good, wonderful things, like relationships, or alcohol is a gift that God has given us to be used rightly, but if we turn to alcohol when we're in a place of wilderness, that is not going to help us. Same thing with sexual, with our sexual desires. To fulfill those, when we're in that wilderness place to give us meaning, that's not going to ultimately do it. So to ask yourself, where do I turn when I'm put to the test? Is it to the Lord or is it to something else? And allow him to gently invite you back to say again, make me your salvation because I alone am faithful. I alone can do it. Make me the satisfaction of your soul and me alone.